Hi everyone, Editor Lucas here with a content warning. This episode and its subject matter discuss domestic violence, child abuse, animal abuse, and suicide. If that's not something that you want right now, feel free to skip over and we'll see you next time. internet i'm annie i'm kit and i'm mac and this is i will fight you a podcast where we've been turning opinion into stone cold facts since 1986 today's fact sometimes your setting can make or break the story and to do that we will be talking about two movies very unlike in dignity (laughs) (laughs) it was mac's pick so we are doing juon and the american remake the grudge Specifically, this will be Jew on the Grudge because there's Jew on the Curse, which becomes before Jew on the Grudge, but the Grudge was specifically made about the Grudge. Listen, <laughs> Jew on uses the Grudge as a subtitle. Yes. So it gets really confusing. And there's also a whole bunch of Jew ons. They're all good, by the way. Also, aiding the confusion is that the director of the first two Juon movies, Takashi Shimizu, also directed the first two The Grudge movies. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, so just 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 go with it. We're talking about Juon The Grudge and The Grudge. Should we talk about the, the version with Sarah Michelle Gellerin and the version that does not have Sarah Michelle Gellerin? Is that the way to distinguish them? It might. Gosh. There's a Japanese version, and then there's a version that inexplicably focuses on white people. Yeah, white Americans. That's a very important (laughs) distinguishing thing to make. Ju-On 2002 and The Grudge 2004? Yeah, that's a good one. I don't know. Look, the issue is that The Grudge is very much a remake. Occasionally, it's almost a shot-for-shot remake in this movie, and then it just sort of, you know, wanders in and out of doing that. The Grudge was actually fast-tracked in production because The Ring did so well as a remake of Ringu. Okay, so instead of just taking the whole kind of creeping dread of Ringu and putting it in the misty, gross winter of the Pacific Northwest, this one just said, all right, well, what if we did the same setting in urban Japan, but we just sort of sprinkled in some white folk in the movie? And by sprinkle it, I mean 99% of the characters are now white folk. And the white folk don't really speak Japanese that well, but they're inexplicably there. These monolingual motherfuckers, what are they doing here? (laughs) (laughs) Who decides they're going to live in Japan and doesn't look up at least a little bit of Japanese? Watashi wa Karen. Oh, Jesus. Like, I was watching that part and like, she turns to the kid and she's like, Anata wa? And across the room, John's like, "Mm, shouldn't have said Anata. That's rude. (laughs) For the record, everybody, John is a scholar of Japanese. Yeah. He literally is a graduate of Japanese stuff. My husband, he majored in Weeaboo. He studied (laughs) Japanese. That was his major. So he took like four or five years. Towards the end, he was not only dreaming in Japanese sometimes, but also reading like Tale of Genji in he was working on like he wasn't as great at it, but he was definitely studying like old Japanese <laughs> to read some of this. Shit. So he is extremely white, didn't major <laughs> in Japanese, though, so he is slightly more allowed to have an opinion about it. 
There's also a reason why anytime I encounter her husband, I will often mispronounce Japanese as badly yeah, as possible. Yeah, as though that's something you do consciously now. And like, you, I, like yeah, now it's unconscious. You committed to the bit too hard, and now you just say yeah. kitsune every time instead of kitsune. Yeah, kitsune. I'm going to uajimaya. <laughs> I'm going to go to the wadge. <laughs> Actually, I heard a terrible pronunciation of a place in Japan the other day. Okay, hit me. Hiroshima. No. Oh, God. No. God, no. Was this an American pronouncing it this way? A Canadian. Oh, God. How young were they? He was in his 40s or 50s. So way too old. Oh, God. I mean, it would have been extra insult to injury if it was an American, because you can't bomb a city and then not know how to pronounce it. But still. (laughs) Hiroshima. I just like every single like history unit in American school, at least, goes over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yep. Oh, he also mispronounced Nagasaki, but it didn't stand out to me as much as the Hiroshima one. Oh, we, 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 we have, we, it is important that we know those names. Yeah. It's the very least you can do. It is literally the very least we can do. Wow. Okay. So, so the grudge. Important note about Zuan the grudge. It was actually based on the like writer director Takashi Shimizu. He actually noted as a child he had a personal fear of this dance troupe that was going around that would paint themselves white and dance, and he had always made him terrified. So he wanted to make ghosts that were like white, and then he also wanted to combine that with, and this is important, a focus on how terrifying the domestic abuse being on the rise in Japan was. Ah, see, which is interesting because when they remade it for The Grudge, they were just like, you know what's scary? Hair. (laughs) Also foreign people. And foreign people. (laughs) Also women. And women. Women are... Women are evil, am I right? Am I right, folks? Foreign women with hair, though. (laughs) (laughs) At first, I was like, well, let's do Juon first and then do The Grudge. But then I was like, it might be more fun if we do it section by section. But then Ah. the problem is that Juon actually has the title cards that tell you where the section separates, while The Grudge just kind of blindly keeps galloping forward without telling you anything. And I really wish that they had a title card that just said, Karen! (laughs) But they didn't. God, how funny would it be, though, to have a title card with, like, a Japanese character, and below that it just says Karen. God, <laughs> so fucking good. <laughs> Suzanne. 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 Matthew. Matthew. Uh, no, I don't know how to break that one down into katakana. <laughs> Peter. Peter. Kaiko. So the opening note is this guy basically killing his kid's cat because he just killed his wife and then he's going to kill his son. And this guy is... Takeo. Takeo Sayaki? Yeah. Takeo? Okay, thank you. And his wife is Kayako. She's important. Their son, Toshio. Toshio's important. And Toshio's cat, Mar? Who is thematically important, sort of. So this is the premise of the whole series is basically that Takeo killed his wife and child because he thought his wife was having an affair. Uh, It was just a jealous dude. And he thought his wife was having an affair because she wrote in her diary that she had a crush on a guy. He thought that his son wasn't actually his son, so he killed his son too. And then he killed himself. And so the whole premise of the grudge is basically an onryo was created, a vengeful ghost created by someone who dies with rage. 
Yeah. And like, this is one of those things where like the same kind of thing where you get like Neko, like demon cats and just evil, like a woman who dies in a fury turns into like a specific type of Oni, like vengeful ghosts are all over this shit. So then our first title card is about Rika, because the title card will always tell you who you're focusing on. Yeah, she's a young social worker who is put in charge of this house where there is this old woman named Sachie, who is like very much not she's not there. She mostly just sort of sits. She needs a lot of help to get through the day. She arrives at this house and it is a mess. An also important note is, I'm going to let Annie continue, is that Juan is very good about, like, sound. It's very quiet. Yes. There's almost never any noise other than what you're supposed to have. So you'll hear her walking around. There's quiet. It it ratchets up the tension so much. Very much so. And, like, so much of, like, Rika's section at the first one is very much like this very claustrophobic set of shots because this is a very small house, very narrow, and a lot of the shots are very much done to make Rika feel like this is a weird, strange place and there is not a lot of room to maneuver or escape, especially because it is covered in trash. The whole place is just a huge mess. There's nobody else there except Sachie, like the young couple who are supposed to live here along with the husband's mother are just not here, but who is here here is a boy who has been taped into a closet. Yeah. Uh, he's holding a black cat. And he just stares. Yeah. He just stares. Rika, of course, goes to call for help and it's like, why was there a little boy taped in the closet? And like, help is going to be on the way. So she's just like, okay, well, I guess I'll just sit frosty with this little boy who was taped in a closet. Oh, he's just crouching on the banister staring at me. And she asks his name. He replies with Toshio. No, it's like Toshio. Yeah, very monotone. It's a very weird way to announce your name. Yeah. She's like, okay, so Toshio-kun, hi. (laughs) She then hears Sachie starting to talk in the other room. So she goes over to her because Sachie is who she's supposed to be taking care of. And Sachie is just kind of repeating over and over. I told her, I told her again and again, just the way you said to please stop tormenting me. And she just keeps staring at something in the corner and eventually like Rika gets her to calm down and lie down. And then she basically looks away for a second and then she looks back and there is this awful black figure hovering over Sachie. As she like panics and falls back, we see Toshio watching in gloomy silence. New title card. Katsuya. In the middle of Rika's we missed, she received a phone call, a voicemail was left from Hitomi going, hey, Katsuya, how's mom? Can you call me? We meet the family that lives in the house. Sachie is the mother of a young man. A salary man. Yeah, who is Katsuya. And we meet him and his young wife, Kazumi. And Katsuya is clearly not really somebody who is, he's not really a husband who pays attention. No. To his wife. So you have sort of the like the standard trope, especially in J-horror, of like the young housewife who has now been like saddled with her husband's mother, who usually doesn't like her at all. But, you know, in this case, it's more just Sachie, who is very strange, especially because Kazumi thinks that Sachie has been running around at night because she keeps hearing somebody running around in the house and trashing the place. So Katsuya is like, it's strange how mom sleeps all day. And Kazumi is like, yeah, it's because she's running around. 
She's like, hey, I know you're heading off to work right now, but please remember your sister is coming over to help make dinner. And he's like, huh? Is that what? is that today? Uh, and she's like, you forgot. And he's like, I did forget. <laughs> it's fine. Don't worry about it. Goodbye. He heads off until we focus on Kazumi. Later, Kazumi falls asleep because it's the middle of the day and she is woken up by something running through and knocking over all the tea snacks that she had out. She, of course, assumes it's Sachie. And she sits up and she's like, if you need something, mommy, you can always tell me. And she gets up to go check on her. And as she does, she notices there's a bunch of tiny handprints all over the sliding door. Which is totally cool and normal. Yep. So she follows these handprints and finds a cat on the front stairs. They go to the second floor. And then as she like gets a little closer to it, a pair of arms reach down, scoop up the cat. So she panics. There should not be anyone else in this house. We then flash to Katsuya getting home. He can't find his wife anywhere, and he just finds his mom zoning out. So he's confused, and he finds the house in total disarray and starts looking around even harder for his wife. And then he finds her on their bed, and she's frozen, eyes wide open, unmoving. Yeah, like, he gets her a little bit awake, and she starts just making these, like, gasping noises. Like, she is trying to say something, but can't. So he rushes to call an ambulance. As he's rushing to pull out his cell phone and call, we see Toshio, white-painted, walking past Katsuya from behind. There are several good shots in this movie of someone who is just, like, walking past a place where usually Toshio is, and then turning back and looking, and there's nothing there. Like, Toshio is not necessarily a malevolent spirit, but he is, like, a harbinger of it. Yeah. He's, like, signs of what's coming. Yeah. And eventually he sees Toshio, stumbles back, because what the hell? Yeah, there's a little boy in my house. And then, like, we get this really good transition for this actor where, like, Katsuya is horrified and then suddenly there's just this small lighting change in the room. And then his face just collapses into, like, this malevolent expression. Yeah, it's it's awesome. I believe that's also where we get that ringing noise, because there is like, there's an audio cue here. What Mac is talking about, like, Juon is very intentional about its audio. And one of its main things is an audio cue that we come to understand is probably like the presence of the ghosts in the house, like a possession. And like, we get this as Katsuya like covers his ear and then like that ringing happens and his face falls and it appears that he has now been possessed by Takeo. And he now believes that Kazumi was cheating on him and he says, that child is not mine, despite the fact that they don't actually have any children. Hitomi comes over and she's like, hi, how is everybody? Where, Where is everybody? Where is everybody? Hello. And she finds her brother sitting on the stairs. She's like, hey, what's going on? He goes, it's not a good day. And she's like, uh, okay. And he goes, that child is not mine. And she's like, Oh, he's doing such creepy muttering under his breath really, really fast. Hitomi's like, okay, I'm going to go. Bye. (laughs) And leaves. Which is why she leaves a voicemail message that is like, hi, I'm, if you're there, call me. Yeah, because these sections are not in chronological order. Because in the the Japanese version, they have these ties, like the voicemail message that you just heard, etc. Speaking of which, our next title card is Hitomi. Yeah, so... Hitomi is, she's an OL, she's an office lady. She is one of the last people to leave her building at night. We see her leave a voicemail, try to call her brother and be like, hey, what the hell's going on? And then she does the thing, which is the scary shit, which is walking along a hallway in an almost empty office building and hearing something behind you. 
Yeah, she hears what sounds like feet dragging behind her. So she kind of panics, as one does, and rushes into the bathroom. But as she's using the bathroom, she hears that same feet and she watches a shadow pass her door. And then, like, her phone rings and the caller ID says it's her brother. And she answers the phone and she hears that very particular, it's the death rattle noise that, yeah. if you know anything about the grudge or Juon, is associated with Kayako. She just makes that. It's like this, ah, but that, yeah. but like really, really awful. She scrambles out of the bathroom, losing her teddy bear that's on her purse as she goes. Yeah, she's got like a phone charm or something that's like a little plush bear. She rushes to the security that's downstairs in the building, and they say they'll go take a look at it for her. So she sits at the security office and keeps an eye on the monitors from there. And she watches the security guard go upstairs, go to the bathroom she was in. And as he's doing that, the lights flicker and she watches a shadow rise up around him, which causes her to panic. And she rushes out and rushes back to her home apartment. Yeah, he told me he's gone. She's smart. <laughs> She's like, nope, I'm gone. <laughs> And then they do, like, my favorite shot in the movie. Oh, it's such a good shot. Of, like, Hitomi goes to her apartment, she enters the elevator, and she is on the right side of the frame while there's a window on the left side, as it just sort of shows the floors go by. And after, like, a floor or two, there's Toshio just looking up into the elevator, just watching. Yeah. And it repeats that shot for, like, five floors. He's just kind of a, a sad boy. He's just watching. And because it's like just an apartment building, it's identical every single time until it gets to her floor. And by the time that like the audience expectation is like, okay, Toshio's going to be there. He's not. Nope. Oh, it's just, it's so good. It's so good. She heads out. She heads to her apartment. As she gets there, she gets a call on her cell phone, supposedly from her brother. And he's like, hey, what? I'm here now. What apartment are you in? She tells him the seventh floor. And immediately there's a ding dong at her door. <laughs> He's like, I'm outside the building, which really seems like the ghost is just, this is just f***ing with Hitomi at this point. Yeah. So she goes to open the door, finds oh. nobody oh, that's, there. It's the worst, though, because she looks out the peephole yeah. and he's there looking back in the peephole. And sees her brother. And then she opens it and he's not there, which is when her phone starts making that grudge death rattle. Yeah. And then she's like, oh, God. <laughs> like she throws the phone into the hallway, slams the door shut, runs to the bed, covers her head with the blankets. Then she's like, you don't hear her saying this to herself, but she's like, I, I got to calm down. I got to calm down. I'm just going to turn on the TV and it's going to be fine, folks. It is not fine. <laughs> nope. She watches the TV. It's just a fun nature channel thing about birds. But then it starts flickering and we start seeing the eyes, the wide eyes of Kayako's ghost yeah. trading places with the director. And it keeps distorting this woman's face this, on this. this yeah, figure. it keeps yeah. distorting the woman's face and like making the sound trick, too. So it's like, oh, and then eventually it just settles in this awful looking face with that death rattle. So she panics. She pulls the blankets totally over her head because, you know, she's doing the thing where it's like you're totally safe if you're beneath the blankets as being a child yeah. goes. But then she suddenly jolts a little bit as if something like pulled at her feet and she oh, looks no, no, wait, down no, wait, wait, and wait, Real quick, there's a good oh. bit here where she like, she hides in bed and then she's like, wait a minute, what is this? Because she realizes she's holding something and she slowly uncurls her hand and it's that teddy bear charm. Yep. Yeah, and then she hides underneath the covers again. And that's when she gets the jolt where something pulls at her feet 
And she looks down and there's the ghost of Kayako who pulls her down the rest of the way. And then like it does this whole shot of like the blankets collapsing. There is nothing on the bed anymore. He told me he's gone. Deathbed, the bed that eats. Yeah, yeah. Bed at her. (laughs) Yep. The bed ate her. Title card. Toyama. We have no idea who this is. This is the part where we go back to Rika briefly because her boss, Hirohashi, shows up to the house to be like, hey, what's up? How's it going? And then he finds Sachie, who is now dead, and Rika is still crouched in that corner, just in a state of shock. So he calls the police. They show up. They're interviewing him and they look over and find Katsuya's business card because business card is huge in Japan. And so they decide to dial it to try and figure out where he is and let him know that something's going on in his house. But they hear the phone ringing from upstairs. Which is definitely a good sign. A great sign. They creep upstairs. They look in the closet where Rika had found Toshio earlier. uh, And they find that that's a way to the attic. They climb their way up to the attic and they find uh, Katsuya and Kazumi frozen and staring into space up there. Yeah. So they're dead. So that's cool. They're dead. And so, like, they take Rika to the hospital and Detective Nakagawa interviews her a little. She's like, yeah. And also, did they end up finding that boy that was in the house? And he's like, uh, what'd you say his name was again? Oh, he told me it was Tatsuya. He's like, hmm, hmm. You see this mysterious photo with a woman's face torn out, but there's a whole family here. Do you see this? Do you see this photo? She's like, yeah, that's the little boy. And he's like, oh, boy. Oh, hmm. Oh, mm, boy. Hmm. Mm, mm. They're all dead. <laughs> the two detectives then discover the history of the Sayaki house, which is when we flash to a little girl whose name is Izumi. And we meet her dad. Who greets her father coming home. Her dad, Toyama. Yeah, and we meet her dad. He's very nice. Yeah. He goes to play with his daughter. She's gesturing down at like some some drawings he did. He's encouraging her. She's been playing on their recorder. And as they're kind of playing and going over stuff, they're approached by those two detectives. And they're like, hey, Toyama, you investigated that house five years ago when there were those murders, the Saiki murders. And he's like, uh, Izumi, go home, please. <laughs> And Izumi's like, but dad. And he's like, go home. So we watch her go home. And they're like, hey, I'm like, listen, you should probably help us out and take a look at this. And so he's like, okay. And they're like, hey, you want to <laughs> check out the security footage? And he's like, I guess. And oh, we flash back to what he told me saw on the security camera before she left yeah. of the security guard going into the bathroom. Except for, as this is starting, the detectives hear Hirosen was found dead. We'll be right back. And they get up and leave, leaving Toyama there alone to stare at the security footage. Hey, don't do that, actually. (laughs) Toyama just stares at the security footage. And this time we get to see more than what Hitomi saw. We get to see the shadow, like, engulf the security guard and then turns and slowly walks towards the camera until all we see are the eyes and hear the gurgle. She almost passes where the camera is, like, just sort of slowly pacing. And then from, like, the bottom of the frame, like, this darkness just envelops it until eventually her eyes open. And it's like she's staring right at Toyama. Yep. And he's like, mmm, no. We then briefly flash to Rika, who's in her hospital bed. And she wakes up to Toshio staring at her and Kayako hovering. Toshio's just like crouched at the end of her bed and he's doing this thing where like he's got his hands on his knees and his hands almost look like, honestly, they almost look like a cat kneading. 
Because whenever Toshio makes noise, he doesn't make the grudge noise. He makes cat noises because he really loved his pet cat. Yeah, Toshio is very associated with the cat that got strangled because, like, the thing about Toshio is, like, the movies never actually make it entirely clear whether Toshio was drowned by his father or by whether Kayako just kind of, like, took him with her when she became an onryo. Yeah. So Toshio just makes cat noises unless he is saying his name. We then flash back to Tayama, who's gotten some petrol and is splashing it around the Tokugawa slash Sayaki residence to set it on fire. And he's like, no, we're not doing this. This house is bad. We're not doing this. <laughs> this house is bad. We're done. We're taking care of it. He's just noping out of the whole movie's premise. <laughs> exactly. He's just like, uh-uh, I'm not doing this again. No, thank you. <laughs> Here's some teen girls talking upstairs, talking about drinking sake and complaining at each other about boys. So he hears one of them leave because she's like, I don't want to do this. And she leaves. And as she leaves, they pause and they stare at each other for a little bit. Yeah, it is this really interesting lighting trick where it is very dark. Toyam is going there at night. But this room that we see and through the hallway where this teen girl is, it's like lit like daylight. Yeah. And they stare at each other for a really long moment before she leaves. Yeah, she turns and flees. So, like, it's this really interesting thing where you get a sense of, like, oh, there's some kind of, like, extra haunting shit happening here. Which is when we hear the girls go, did Izumi really leave? Yeah, you know, it's probably totally fine that it's the same name as Toyama's grade school daughter. Daughter? Yeah, don't worry about it. He heads upstairs to kind of peek in on these teen girls. Which, again, it's daylight in their room when they turn to investigate something in the closet and then scream and he watches them collapse to the ground and get, like, pulled away. Toyama's like, yeah, I'm good. And he backs down the stairs, which is when he sees this really creepy contortion of Kayako crawling down the stairs at him. Mm -hmm. He flees. And as he's starting to leave, the two detectives rush in and are like, Toyama, you're fine. But as he flees past them, they get killed by Kayako. You know, as you do, just sort of crawling along. And then we do the thing that this part is completely unrepresented in The Grudge. I believe they come back to it a little in the idea it, when they do The Grudge too. But this is Izumi. Yeah, we flashed Izumi, aka Toyama's daughter. And we see that teen girl from the house who has two friends, but she is haunted by these missing persons posters featuring the three friends that she went to the house with who are all gone now. She's... Trying to go through her regular life, but she is clearly not having a great time of it on account of the guilt. Yep. We also see her go into the same house Toyama had earlier sent her to, so we can cement that this is his daughter. Yeah. She's upset because they just got back from a class trip recently, which is where everybody assumed the three girls went missing afterward. There are pictures all over the school, but none of them have her in them. And her friends are incensed, like, hey, why are you singling out Izumi like that? Like, are you an asshole? What's your problem? And her teacher, who was basically like uh, chaperoning this, was like, I'll give you the pictures and you can take them to her and you'll see why. He's like, there's just something really weird here with the negatives. I don't know what's up with that. I'll just like, it'll take me about a week to get this sorted out. And so like we see Izumi and over the course of this week, Izumi starts losing it. Like she starts really being upset, staying in her room, wears a hoodie, keeps it pulled up. She is horrified by something. So at the end of the week, Izumi's friends show up to her apartment. Her teacher is like, I'll go with you. And they're like, no, don't worry about it. Yeah. So they go on their own. You don't need to know where she lives. Yeah. Because she has good friends. 
They show up. They first find her mom, who is also in a state. And her mom is like, are you her friends? And she lets her in. They head to Izumi's room, where she is even more paranoid and scared. They go to open the window. She's like, no, 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 no. And they find that she's completely plastered it over with, like, newspaper. Because she says that they keep looking in. And they're like, what, actually? She's terrified and paranoid. So eventually they're like, you know, maybe we won't give you the pictures yet. We're going to go. Yeah, like they just leave and they only remember like about the pictures by the time they get out. And they're like, wait a minute. So they pull those out and they find out that the reason that the teacher didn't post them is because Izumi's eyes are completely black voids. And as they keep going through the photos, it's every single photo of Izumi and even photos of the three girls. Yeah. And they're like, what the hell is this? And then we come back to Izumi, who like has this weird dream where she goes into her like living room and her father's there. And she's like, oh, hi, dad. I remember seeing you in the house. Yeah. And he turns towards her and he looks miserable. He's so sad. And then she wakes up and some of the newspaper has been torn off the windows. Yep. And she panics. She gets up to her feet. And looking through those gaps in the window of, by the way, this is a high-rise apartment. She sees her three friends. And then they start stalking her through the house. Yeah. And these friends are done up in the same, like, makeup. Like, the same almost blue-tinged skin and staring eyes as Kayako and Toshio. As they stalk forward, she keeps fleeing from them. And eventually they're standing in front of her and she stumbles backwards straight into Kayako. It's really cool because she like she stumbles backwards into the family altar, which is probably still set up at the time for like her father or something. But like that's just sort of the family altar for her dead relatives. And reaching out of the depths of the altar are Kayako's hands. Yep. And they drag her in. And then again, nothing. Just nothing. nothing. Flashcard. Kayako. So now that we've gone through this, like, time skip of Izumi growing up, we come back to Rika, who's meeting up with an old friend who's named Mariko for lunch. She's fine. She's still working at the care center. She's got a haircut. She's doing okay. She is not doing okay. She's dealing with nightmares. She still sees things, but she's alive. It's fine. Sometimes she's covered in cats. Yeah. And not like a fun way where it's cozy. (laughs) A terrifying way where it's all the black cat that's associated with Toshio. Yeah, sometimes she just sees Toshio in her dreams. Uh, right, sitting on her. It's fine. Sitting on her, yay. Her friend Mariko is now an elementary school teacher. She talks about how one of her kids hasn't come to class. It's so weird. Don't know who that would be. A grade school kid who's just strange and not gonna, You know, I'm sure it's fine. It's fine. Rika is listening, but then gets distracted because she feels a cat brush past her and then looks under the table and finds Toshio staring at her. It's fine. Oh, there's even like this bit where there's this old man that she's working with at the care center who like keeps doing like peekaboo faces to something right behind yeah. Rika. And like you never actually see it's Toshio, but it's like, oh, no. Yeah. This is when Rika wakes up in a house screened by cats. She then receives a call from Mariko the next day. Mariko's like, I'm doing a home visit. No one's home, but the kid's here alone. It's really weird. And through the phone, Rika hears a cat yell. And she's like, oh, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. So Rika runs out to try and save her friend, runs directly to the house. But she gets there right as Mariko is being dragged up into the attic. Yep. She 
peers up into the attic looking for Mariko, the same place where the detectives found those bodies. And instead of Mariko or anybody else, she sees Kayako starting to crawl towards her. So she's like, nope. Yeah, nope, 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 nope. Nope, been through this. Heads back downstairs. And she pauses as she finds a mirror and looks in. Because she just saw Kayako's face. Yeah. And she looks in the mirror and her face is Kayako's face. She flashes back to a couple of times throughout the movies when someone has covered their face and peeked through their fingers like the old man did, like she has done before. And she does that. She covers her face with her hands and then peeks through her fingers. And there's Kayako. Who then emerges from her chest? Yeah, who then emerges from her chest? But then Kayako then starts coming down the stairs instead. Yeah, and Rika like scrambles back. And as that happens, we also see Takeo walking down the stairs towards Rika, who's now seeing herself become like more into Kayako. Yeah, and like eventually Kayako reaches her, like puts her hand up to her, and she has this whole sort of vision of like this thing where she's like, oh, oh, I see. Like, all of these times that I have been haunted, it has been Kayako. Like, there was even a bit earlier where she was taking a shower and felt a hand touching the back of her head. That was Kayako. And it's this version of Kayako who is still frightening, but less scary, just sort of staring at her. And you think like, oh, this ghost just needs help. She just needs to be understood. Yeah. Uh, no, not quite. They're all bound by Takeo. Yeah. What happens is that we eventually see Rika... Uh, whose hair is longer now. Yeah. She's lying dead in the house. It zooms in on her, showing glimpses of, like, Tokyo littered with missing people flyers as it, like, zooms in on her. And then she opens her eyes wide and does the death gurgle. Because the whole thing about the grudge in Juong is that it repeats itself over and over again, relentlessly, usually victimizing women. Like, you will notice, most of this movie is women who are now in danger. Yep, because, again, it's a focus on domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about America. <laughs> yeah, let's, how would you like to watch all of that, but worse and full of white people? <laughs> yeah, how, how would you feel if that was a movie about white people not understanding Japanese culture and just kind of stumbling around Tokyo and dying? What if men had feelings about this? What if men had feelings and really it was all about women being evil? What if women were evil, actually? What if foreign women were evil? What if? What if your punishment for leaving the Imperial Corps was to be stalked by a scary foreigner and then to die violently? What if? So the grudge is about a whole bunch of white people who all seem to live in the same area of Tokyo, which wouldn't be so weird. Uh, I mean, we assume it's Tokyo. I don't actually know. I don't actually know either. It's, it's more obvious in, in Juan. But like we have a whole bunch of people who live in this urban core who are all white, but they all don't seem to know each other. There's a university. One of them is an exchange student. There's a guy who's a professor. I guess they're all going to this school. There's signs later that they aren't. And also, despite the fact that almost none of them seem to speak Japanese, they work at Japanese businesses. When we hear them speak Japanese, it's very, oh, bless your heart, you're trying, Japanese. First, we focus on a white guy, because of course we do. <laughs> it's Bill Pullman, everybody. It's Bill Pullman. His name is Peter. You know, the, the president from Independence Day, that guy? Yeah. What if Bill Pullman had feelings in Japan? What if he had feelings? 
he's standing and he's looking at the skyline from his balcony while his busty wife rides in the background. Who has woken up with a bra, a full head of makeup. Her hair's already did. There was a solid 10 seconds where I was absolutely certain that this wife was Billy Piper. (laughs) (laughs) Real quick, before we get into this, I have a few things here for us in The Grudge. So this movie was directed by Takashi Shimizu, who directed Juon. He also went on to direct Juon 2, The Grudge, I think it's called, and also The Grudge 2, which are also separate movies. But this one was written by Steven Susko, who only seems to have written a handful of other things, including The Grudge and The Grudge 2. But Mackenzie, I have a treat for you. Yeah, yeah. The guy who wrote The Grudge also wrote and directed unfriended the dark web oh no yeah the sequel to unfriended (laughs) i love it yeah that's all of that for now i'll have something else a little later also this was executive produced by uh sam raimi okay which is why ted raimi is here exactly so busty wife Writhing around in bed as she wakes up to see her sexy husband, Bill Pullman, the sexiest American in Japan. (laughs) It's a very low bar to clear. (laughs) (laughs) She goes, come back to bed, baby. And he instantly just throws himself over the balcony. Yeah, he doesn't even throw himself. He just tips himself over the balcony so he lands (laughs) head first. Because when you do the math and you realize how many floors he fell, it's like, that's only going to kill him if he lands head first. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's also this like moment where after he goes over the edge of the balcony, we cut back to the wife and there's like a solid half second of her like not having realized what just happened. So yeah. it's, it transitions from wait, what to oh my God. <laughs> and it's interesting because you would think that that would make her sort of the protagonist here. Maybe someone who was like, what happened to my husband? I need to find out. No, but nope. No, incorrect. No, no. That would mean this movie's about women. Yeah, but no. And it's not. It's about men's feelings. It's a movie that features women. We then get the title opening, which is like hair forming into the grudge and then everybody's names. I like that it does the same thing at the very beginning with like the opening crawl of like what happens when when somebody dies, uh, uh, death and like it, it becomes a grudge. But they're also like it does this thing where it fades out on the words death and fury and red. <laughs> We now meet Yoko, which is a Japanese name that white people are probably going to know, so we're going to call her Yoko. She is the only Japanese girl in this movie. Don't worry about her. Quite possibly the only Japanese name that white Americans know. Hey, y'all remember the Beatles, right? (laughs) So here's an approachable name. It's Yoko. She's a social worker. She's here to clean up for, no, not a Japanese woman named Sachie. Emma. A white lady named Emma. Hi, Emma. It is good to see you again. Yoko does a couple of similar angles here to do on where she's just cleaning up on the house. It's interesting because there is a very different budget here happening. Mostly this is going to show up in Kayako, but also in some of the things in the house. Do we want to talk about the differences in the house, Mackenzie? Yes, I do. Awesome. The house is like wider, so it's not as claustrophobic. It's obviously bigger to suit Western mindset. And also, so the sliding paper doors have all been replaced by instead like the clouded glass like you'd find in a bathroom. Yeah, it's all frosted glass doors on runners, which is like, but you're saying this is in Japan. Yeah. And then all the windows have been made, and I'm going to put like quotes around this, more Japanese. (laughs) Yeah, like they look a little bit more like 
Uh, I, I don't have a very good way to describe this, but you know how like woodblock paintings, you'll sometimes see like the sky will have the clouds will be like those sort of long horizontal lines with rounded edges. And that is sometimes like kind of a, a stylistic thing on woodblock paintings. They've got that on a lot of the like the window panes, like just so you know that we're in Japan. It feels a little more Japanese. Just so you're not confused. They've made sure to, like, the decorations in the house are clearly meant to evoke, look, this is in Japan. Isn't this so weird? I think there's a couple of bonsai trees in the house. Oh, God. Yeah. There's also a thing that, like, not only is this movie just noisier in terms of a soundtrack, but also this house. They have a kazerin, like, that type of wind chime that is just, like, a bell with the tongue is... It's got like a little wind chime that's like like a long strip of paper. They've got a kazerin in here and you never see it but once in the movie. But oh boy, that thing is just constantly going. Oh boy, do you hear it all the time, constantly, forever. I think they're trying to like tie it into that possession noise, that weird like ringing sound. It's a plot hole. You got to fill it, right? Oh my god, it's like we can't just have noise. We got to just have that cousin going, going, going. And it's like I- where Rico was walking through the house, it was just like all this stifling silence. In this case, they've got like this orchestral creepy music going on behind Yoko running around. Just so you know, something scary is going to happen. They do a couple of the same shots, even of her like pulling stuff up around the house, cleaning up a little. She gets back, she pulls back a sliding door in upstairs one of the closets and she's like huh that's weird i hear a noise here also of note because it was a plot hole people needed to know who did it uh, she finds emma holding a tape dispenser and then when she pulls back the sliding door she notices the closet door covered with tape christ sake and also i just have a quick question here this same thing like yoko does it here oh wait no the tape doesn't happen yet for some reason. Yeah, the tape isn't here yet, but it definitely seems to be the same place because it's the same closet. But like, Yoko does this here. Karen is going to do it later. Rika did it in the first one. Who are all these social workers cleaning up a house with no gloves? <laughs> <laughs> they are touching all this shit with their bare hands and I don't understand it. Yoko opens the door and she's like, huh, I hear something up in the crawl space. I should just pull myself up into the closet. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. This is a smart decision. Okay, leaving aside death by ghost, it's a great way to get tetanus. (laughs) There is such a thing as demonic possession. It's called lockjaw. (laughs) She finds the dirty and cobweb-ridden attic, which for some reason she goes, I'm going to climb all the way into with a lighter. And so she gets up in there and then, oh, Kaiko's already up there, by the way. Like, we just see Kaiko's yeah. face. It's even more like the hair is much stringier on this wig. And she just, like, scrambles super fast over to the housekeeper. We see the housekeeper get pulled up into the ceiling. And that's it for Yuko. Yeah, that's it for Yuko. Bye. Bye, Yuko. Bye, Yuko. Well, we see her once more, but... <laughs> yeah, that'll be later. Don't worry about it. But anyway, now that the Japanese girl is gone, let's cut to our real protagonist, Sarah Michelle Michelle Geller. Oh boy, this would have been like immediately post-Buffy too. You might think that this is the Katsuya and Kazumi of this movie, but it's not. No, it's just like, it's still Rika. It's still Rika. And also now Rika has a husband. Is it a husband? Is it a boyfriend? I think it's husband. Unclear. Unclear. I just wrote him down as a very annoying boyfriend. His name is Doug. 
His name is Doug. It's very unclear about the relationships in this movie, because also <laughs> later, Matthew and Jennifer, I was like, is Jennifer his daughter? No, she's his wife. Okay. Okay, first off, Sarah Michelle Gellar's character's <laughs> name is Karen, good. which is just mwah, in the year Mwah. of our Lord 2023, a Karen in this movie. Yeah, 20 years after the fact, a gift for us. <laughs> <laughs> so Karen apparently followed Doug to Japan. They have a little conversation about it in bed because he's been dreaming about coming to Japan forever. So I guess he's just a huge weeb. Also, he's got the most 2004-ass haircut I've ever seen on a character. Oh my oh, yeah. god, it's like real adult teen Bieber. <laughs> and like, they both have class? They go to class, apparently. They go to class, apparently, but she set his alarm clock an hour ahead so that he would wake up on time. Instead, they get like a horny scene. Don't worry about it. It's, it's good for the Americans. They can't stay awake unless there's a horny scene. <laughs> oh my god. And it's like, oh, yeah, no, you know me so well. You set a clock an hour ahead of time because you take care of me because you're like my mom. No, Jesus. On their way to class, <laughs> Karen is like, hold up. Let's wait for a second. I want to very clearly and without any shame ogle two people paying respect to their loved ones at a cemetery. Yep. They also have that like that same whenever a, like an American movie is set in Japan, they have that same establishing shot of like skyline plus whole bunch of people in suits crossing a massive crosswalk every single time. Every single time. Yeah, I couldn't tell you what neighborhood this is, but it's very much kind of like that thing where they always get an establishing shot of, like, the crossing at Shibuya or something yeah. with, like, the big crosswalk. Karen goes, Doug, do you know what this is? It's a Buddhist ritual. It it's helps not. their ancestors find peace. It's a Shinto thing. Oh, my fucking God. <laughs> How did nobody catch that? They don't care. It's white. Japanese Honestly, people are weird. And the other thing is that, like, a lot of times with this shit, like, it's probably one of those things where, like, the director looked it over and he was like, you know, I don't actually care. <laughs> He's getting paid a lot more than he normally would to do this. Shinto's weird. <laughs> they help find the spirits of their deceased, of their loved ones, as though she's, like, an, an archaeologist talking about an ancient society and not these two 50-year-olds in a cemetery. Right now. Yeah, they're not that far away. They can hear you. Doug's mm -hmm. even sipping some coffee or something. <laughs> Y'all, that's weird. Look at these strange foreigners. I'm not from here. I have my own customs. Look at my crazy passport. In the middle of urban Japan. <laughs> if you're going to behave like this, just stay home. And you would think that this, I don't know why this scene is here. I mean, Karen doesn't seem to have any other, like, input about, I don't know, the Japanese relationship with death in a cultural or, like, folkloric sense. I was like, oh, maybe I'm misremembering. Maybe this will have, like, some contract where Karen will try to do the Shinto ritual later to help Kayako or something. Yeah. But no. No. It's just here to be like, look, Japan weird. Ha ha. Yeah, it's very pointless. I guess it's just there to say like, hey, death, huh? But you already did that with Yoko. But no, instead, they come up to the university. Karen goes into a room, meets her boss, who is Alex. Alex, another white guy. Ted Raimi's here. Jocks are from Xena's here, y'all. <laughs> Look, everybody, it's Ted Raimi. He's like, Yoko didn't show up to work today. Do you mind going to the house she was working at? It's English speaking. Don't worry. Oh, Jesus. 
And then you also have a thing where she's like, oh, what does this say? She says, looking at her file, and he says, oh, severe lethargy with mild dementia. Why are you taking your own case if you can't read the files. Yep. It's just, you would think she would put at least some effort into, like, there's two brief scenes where she's speaking Japanese and it's very clearly out of a phrase book. And like, if you're going to study abroad, learn the language. Jesus Christ. Again, like, she followed her boyfriend here, so there's a little bit of an excuse, but also, why would you be sending her out to a house on a solo visit when she can't even read the files? Also, why are you in charge, white man? <laughs> why is Alex in charge? Who is he? Why is he in charge of sending out? And what? Why is this white guy here? It's like they basically they went out and they had like, okay, Sarah Michelle Geller is our star here. And then they just surgically went through the script and said every single person that she interacts with also has to be a white person. What will they do if they're like Japanese? It'd be so weird. So it spreads out in this weird web from there of these random white people. It's really, really weird. She heads to the house. On the way is when we encounter her stopping people and being like, Sumi Masen. Yeah, Sumi Masen. Doko wa. <laughs> Kono address. I'd also like to call attention to this because like, it's just a lady pointing the way and walking off. But every single one of my friends who has been in Japan has been like, if I asked directions, the person would nod, grab me, and then walk me there. <laughs> They're very nice. And also, like, this is the thing about, like, what you need to understand about, like, the Japanese, like, housing address system is that it is not laid out in ways that are, like, where you can just look at a street name and an address and be able to pinpoint where it is exactly. The streets are not named that way, nor are they set up that way. So it is very much like, you should just lead the foreigner there. They will get yeah. lost otherwise. Yeah. Also, just frankly, we even have a thing later where she's like looking confused at a train line at the JR station. And Buddy, the fact that she is just looking there puzzled for half a second and a salary man who wants to practice his English isn't walking up to her and asking yeah. if he can help give her directions. <laughs> <laughs> I was in Japan for like two weeks and all my family and I had to do was stand around in a public place and look hopelessly white and somebody <laughs> would want to practice their English with us. <laughs> Yeah, all my friends are constantly like, I was there for two weeks and anytime I looked remotely puzzled, someone would walk up and help me. And it's like, oh, you poor little baby gaijin. <laughs> but no, Karen eventually makes it to the house and finds Emma and we do like kind of a repeat of the stuff that Yoko encountered because we're doing that again. But we're doing it again because we can't have our Rika be a, a Japanese lady. It is very funny, though, that, like, they still have Emma sleeping in this room that they have set up off the side of one of the main areas in the house. But also, she's not sleeping on a futon on the floor. She's sleeping in a mattress they've pulled into the room. <laughs> and also, at some point, Rika, like, takes her out to the patio and just, like, sits Sachie down in Juon. And she just sits on the edge of the house while she cleans her up, gives her a bit of a sponge bath, that sort of thing. But in this one... Well, Emma's white, so they just roll in a chair from somewhere to have her sit on the edge of, of the patio and stuff. It's it's weird. It's very weird. Karen kind of wanders through the house. They've got the spooky music going. You can't enjoy the sounds. It's way too big. And she's just casually walking around and she finds the closet door that's all taped up. And she opens it and now she will find a cat and Toshio in there. But she also finds a mysterious journal. <laughs> 
So somebody can explain things to the white characters later. She then stares at a cat that's being held by Toshio, who's immediately there. She falls on her butt. Quick note, this is the same kid who played Toshio previously. He's just a couple years older now. So we've got the same Toshio in Juon and The Grudge. It was kind of his profession for a little while. He just played a creepy little boy who stared at things. He's a pro, actually. He's a pro at it. Well, there's worse ways to make money. Exactly. Karen does the same thing where she calls Alex and it's like, there is a kid taped into a closet. Where did this kid come from? (laughs) But she also considers the diary, the ominous journal with lots of like childish scribbled pictures and a torn photo of Bill Pullman. (laughs) I feel like a white American lady finding a child in a closet is immediately calling the cops, not her boss. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I feel like that's the vibe. She then goes back upstairs and she goes, Kunichiwa, Watachiwa, Karen, Anadawa? Don't, don't say, don't say Anada, don't, don't directly say you, that's weird. You can just, you can just say name, you can just say what name. Oh, you really, you don't even have to say what's your name, you just say name? <laughs> Watachiwa, Karen. Watachiwa, Karen. No, Christ. <laughs> it's like every anime club in 2004. <laughs> But then Toshio, to his credit, just does the same. Toshio. But then the phone rings and we get the voicemail from Hitomi, who in this movie is Susan. Susan. Hey, guys, it's Susan. Matt, are you there? Try my cell or give me a call at home later. I'm worried about mom. Susan. Hope you like that voicemail. You're going to hear it several more times. (laughs) Are all these white people in Japan? (laughs) I understand the guy getting a job at a Japanese company and bringing his wife. Sure. Bringing his mom. She's a dependent. Sure. But his sister's already here? His sister's already here? His sister just seems to work and, again, just as an office lady. His sister is also an office lady, and she doesn't seem to speak Japanese. She barely speaks it at one point, stumbling through it. Talking to the security guard. It's weird. How is she getting through her day-to-day life? How is she working in an office? She has to be able to read the papers. <laughs> anyway, that's that's in Susan's section that we don't know Susan's section because we don't get the title cards here. Yeah, it's kind of established that she, like she's a little more established here in Tokyo, which means she's been there longer than the couple, which is like, why don't you speak Japanese? <laughs> She can barely stammer away through a sentence. It's wild. Yeah, so Susan leaves the voicemail. And then, like, we do the thing where it's funny because there's a note that they have where it's like, oh, that's weird. The phone is gone from the answering machine. And I have to keep thinking, like, oh, right. A cordless phone could be anywhere in the house and there's an answering machine attached to it. God, there are some listeners who are not going to know what the hell we're talking about. Nope. (laughs) It's a very specific period of history. Yeah, because like there's cell phones and they're all flip phones and they're all old flip phones, but we still have house phones. That is still understood. But they don't have a cord on them, so you can lose that fucking house phone. <laughs> As she's heading back down the stairs, she sees a shadow through the, the fucking glass door wall <sighs> in Emma's room. And she goes that way and finds Emma panicking and shaking her head. And in the background, we see hair. And it's like, she's doing the same thing, but she's not saying, like, I told her, I tried to tell her, please leave me alone. She just eventually has this moment where she makes eye contact with Karen and she's like, I just want her to leave me alone. And Karen's like, okay. Okay, let's let's get you laid down. 
And we just see the hair in the background because hair is scary. And like, sometimes hair is creepy. I'll give you that. Yeah. I don't like it in certain scenarios. It's weird. Especially when it's not my hair. But boy, they are laying it on thick here, quite literally. Yeah, more of the creepy element is always better. (laughs) (laughs) In Juon, it was very clearly made with a budget. Like, most of the scares were mostly just, like, a couple of quick superimposed, like, black shapes and then mostly makeup. It honestly did a great job doing scary shit with very little budget to do any effects. But this one is like, what if Kayako is like... A gross tentacly hair demon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hell yeah. So they do that instead. Like a CGI hair creeps down from the ceiling and like hovers over Emma and Kayako opens her eyes and stares at Karen and Karen is horrified. And then we cut not to a title card. So instead, like, look, the title cards at least tell you this is a different section. This is a different story because Juon is very often a series of intertied vignettes. But in this one, instead, we keep cutting, jumping around in time to different focal point characters without a title card to tell you that this is happening. So you have to spend the first couple of minutes, every couple of scenes, trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And it makes it even more confusing. So we now jump to... Emma, Matthew, and Jennifer entering the house with the realtor as it's being sold to them. I believe Susan's also here. Oh, yes. Susan is also here. Yes. Yeah, because the thing is that, like, Susan's whole sequence is going to go different than Hitomi's. Hitomi enters the house while, like, her brother and sister-in-law are, you know, possessed and dead, respectively. So that's when she enters the house and sort of gets the stink of the grudge on her. But instead, we're meant to believe that Susan touring the house with a realtor is where she is damned. Just being there damns her. Yeah. We then get another, Japan is weird. As the realtor chishes shoes and Matthew and Jennifer go to just step on. And Susan's like, no, you got to change your shoes. And Jennifer goes, wow, even in your own house? I'm not from here. Hey, Americans, Uh don't wear your shoes in your fucking house. (laughs) What is wrong with you as a country that you keep doing this? Take your shoes off, you fucking barbarians. Honestly, you're right to say it. You're right to say it. (laughs) That's weird. That's weird to wear your outside shoes in the house. Don't bring the outside in on your shoes. Don't do that. Your shoes are wet. But also like, no, they've got... And the thing is that they've even got all the house slippers already set out for them. Yeah. They just start stepping around them. And also, 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 frankly, I've been house hunting. These people are house hunting. Every time you go into a house when you are looking to buy it, you either have to take off your shoes or put some coverings over your shoes, little elastic booties. So nobody here should be shocked. (laughs) Don't bring your outside filth into a house that's not even yours. (laughs) Even in their own house? Jesus Christ. Especially in your own house. What's wrong with you? Like, oh, of course, of course, they just, they have to have the line where they're like, Japanese people wear slippers inside? That's silly. That's silly. No, for God's sake. I have my own customs! They didn't notice that Emma has disappeared, so Susan goes to find her. She's already in the room that'll be her bedroom, like, staring up at the ceiling, so that's great. That's when Susan finds a little black cat statuette. 
The real estate agent is also checking out the house by himself. For some reason. And he finds that the tub is full of really dark water. And he's like, yeah, and he goes to try and unplug it, but he finds that the plug chain is broken. Honestly, if, if I'm seeing a tub full of water so dirty, it's black, I'm not sticking my arm in there. I'm not sticking my oh bare my God, skin right? in that. No, it's nope. gross. Even if there's gloves. not a ghost boy in there, that's so gross. <laughs> yeah, gloves, gloves. I'm getting the rubber gloves that go up to the elbow. Yeah. <laughs> but instead, this dude just like takes off a suit jacket, rolls up a shirt sleeve, and he says, I'm in the middle of showing a house to people. I'm going to stick my hand in the filth water. Just stick your whole paw in there. It's fine. <laughs> your are Just fish around in there. Spend some time. Are you sure you don't want to get like a cut or something first to really just sort of really just let all the yuck water into your body? Yeah. So anyway, he fishes up Toshio for a second. <laughs> yeah. And then he's like, that's weird and leaves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's like, that's he's like, weird. Oh. And that's when the door opens and Matthew's like, hey, we'll take it. And he's like, great. And he leaves. <laughs> yeah. It's like. If I tell them about the haunted tub boy, they are never going to buy this house. <laughs> and I love how this guy just leaves the movie completely unscathed. <laughs> yeah, this guy is fine. This guy is totally fine. He was just like, oh, there's a little tub boy. Mm, nope, I'm gone. I'm done. This must be where he dropped the dagger. And this is the butler's pantry where Mrs. Astor concealed herself. And right here is where they found the torso heap in front of our very own fireplace. Unfortunate contribution towards the theme of this movie that is I mean, probably entirely by accident. <laughs> we then flash to the kitchen in the future. They've clearly been living here a while. Sort of. They've got like a whole bunch of boxes everywhere. So it's probably yeah. been like, they probably moved in like maybe less than a week ago. And Matthew enters and stares over towards where his mom is and like, wow, she has been sleeping ever since we got here. And Jennifer goes, I've told you, you can sleep through everything. And he goes, hey, kiddo, are you okay? And I'm like, wait, is this his wife or his daughter? I don't know. And speaking of someone who occasionally, like, affectionately refers to my husband as kiddo, I can't speak to this. No, it's, <laughs> but it's like, you're established as being married to your husband, Danny. <laughs> right, the lore allows for that. Yeah, the lore allows <laughs> for that, Annie. <laughs> this, I've never seen these two be affectionate towards each other. I don't know how related they are. Yeah, it's a sweetheart probably would have made it. Yeah. You know, that's still ambiguous, but that at least seems a little bit more like part of the standard set of spousal nicknames. Yep. But we have this thing where her name's Jen and she's like, I went for a walk and I got super lost and I couldn't find anyone who spoke English that could help me. Yeah. I mean, to her credit, saying like, yeah. I feel lost and isolated here, and I'm not sure I can do this because her husband moved here for work. Yeah. That is the most sympathetic thing that a white person says in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but also, come on. But also, come on. Get a language course on tape, for God's sake. Also, you couldn't find anyone who speaks English. See also, previous point, re getting approached by a salary man who wants to practice English. <laughs> it's true. Look at my crazy passport! I will give you going for a walk and getting super lost, because again, the addresses here are ridiculous. But like, again, just... <clears throat> I feel for Jen's feelings of loneliness and isolation. That is something that definitely happens when moving to a foreign country where, like... Your first language is not the dominant language here. Yeah. But that's almost on accident for how the movie treats white people. <laughs> yep. 
Also, this Kazadin will not shut up. It's just jingle, 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 jingling, jinglingle. See, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a thing because it, because Kazadins are often associated with summer and opening the windows. And summer is when ghost stories happen. Do you get it? Do you get it? Do you get it? It's scary. It's a spooky. Do you get it? Somebody kill that f***ing bell. <laughs> God, it is in every single scene. It will not shut up. There is always a light breeze tousling that little paper. God damn. Then Jen goes grocery shopping and looks like a 21-year-old going to the Asian market for the first time and just picking up a whole <laughs> bunch of ramen. <laughs> then she does something truly demented, which is she pierces the instant noodles with her thumb <laughs> To smell the seasonings inside. <laughs> she even looks around furtively. I think she's trying to figure out if this is a flavor she can eat, but like, come on. <laughs> it's got a lot of pictures on it. You can make a guess. It's like, I mean, it's got to be what? Like less than a hundred yen, probably. Yeah, yeah. You can afford to take a couple of risks. This is like a 75 cent styrofoam bowl of instant noodles. You can try some things out. Also, what if you didn't like the smell of it? Were you just going to put it back? Right? <laughs> I was so ready for her to put it back. I was so ready for her to put it back, too. You're also supposed to peel back that lid and then cover it back up. You've destroyed the integrity of the entire <laughs> instant ramen. <laughs> You've destroyed the structural integrity of the instant ramen making process. <laughs> this is an insult. But, like, again, she just looks like a 20-year-old weeb going out to the Asian market and being like, I can't read any of this. Where's the Pocky? <laughs> anyway, she takes her sad ramen noodles back home and eats half of it for lunch. And then just leaves it. Mm-hmm. And we do the same thing where, like, she falls asleep and then there's the sound of running feet and then she wakes up and everything's, like, messed up. She again is like, Emma, if you want something to eat, just tell me. Because, you know, geriatric women with dementia are known for sprinting. <laughs> yep. <laughs> just sprinting through the house. And this time she sees wet footprints in the broth on the floor. That's how they do this here. Because you can't just leave handprints on a frosted glass sliding door. <laughs> <laughs> so she follows those, ends up seeing Kayako, which they've really pushed forward. Yeah, we do the thing where, like, she sees the cat on the stairs and, like, the hands scoop it up. It's very similar. And then she wanders into that one room at the top of the stairs and the door slams behind her. And then Matthew comes home later. And he searches around for Jennifer, and he finds her not on their bed, but on, like, a bed. I guess? I guess. And he's like, honey, I am going to call an ambulance, which is when Toshio just casually stands up and meows at him. <laughs> which is at least creepier than we're making it sound. Yeah. <laughs> I got kids meowing at me all the time. It's not that weird. <laughs> kids are weird. They do weird shit. And then he backs up into the closet. Toshio creeps over him and screams again. And we do not see Takeo possessing him. No. He's just gone. We don't see any of that. So we don't even get like anything about like, oh, Takeo is the main malevolent force that is making things repeat over and over again. And Kayako is also twisted and dark, but somewhat sympathetic. We don't get that. Nope. Scary Japanese lady. Scary Japanese lady. Anyway, back to Ted Raimi. 
That's Ted <laughs> Raimi. He's showing up at the house. There should be a title card here telling you that there's a section here and that time is skipping around again, but no. Nah, don't worry about it. You just have to be confused about when Ted Raimi shows up, which, you know, you can always be confused when Ted Raimi shows up. <laughs> Even in movies where I completely expect him to show up, I'm like, hey, wait a second, why is Ted Raimi here? Any episode of Xena where you're like, all right, let's settle in for some lesbians. Wait, why is Ted Raimi <laughs> here again? So he walks in the house and he goes... Excuse me, Mrs. Williams, Karen, Karen. I don't worry about Yoko anymore, even though I'll mention later I saw her bike outside. No. <laughs> yeah, who cares about Yoko? <laughs> who cares about Yoko? She's not white. He does the same thing that Rico's boss did, was that he finds Karen in the corner, he finds Emma dead, and then he calls the cops. And Detective Nakagawa and Igarashi are here. They're the only ones who got to keep their names between movies besides Toshio and, and Kayako. Nakagawa and Igarashi ask about uh, anybody else that may have gone missing, and that's when Alice remembers that Yoko exists. They check the voicemail. They find Susan's voicemail. And then they also are like, okay, so... Hey, the phone receiver's missing. It has that thing where you can just make it make noise so you can track down where the hell you left the phone. <laughs> Again, this is a very specific- Because they can't do the business card. Americans won't know what business cards are. Oh, God. And they also want you to have the shock of finding some corpses. Yeah. Because it's scary. Again, it's- such a very specific period in history where you could press a button and a phone starts screaming at you somewhere inside the house. Yeah, and it's like, you know, we have this now again with like, find my phone for when we misplace our cell phones. But like, you're talking about like, you made a call yesterday and you just set the phone down and then went to do something else. And the phone only makes calls. It doesn't have the rest of your life on it. Yeah. So like... You just leave that shit anywhere, so now you have to just go carefully track it down, because otherwise it's going to lose batteries, too. <sighs> House phones were really irritating. <laughs> this is, I've been watching a lot of Columbo, and it is wild watching a show where if people oh God, want right? to get a hold of Columbo, they have to call where he said that he's going to be. <laughs> yeah, he, Columbo is always getting phone calls. There are so many episodes of Columbo that are like revolving around the idea of getting a phone call to be someplace and learning how to set up a film projector. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he gets so many phone calls. You just, there, there was just a risk that it, you know, if you live in Colombo world in the 70s, that you will just get a call on your house phone. And when you open, when you pick up, they're like, is Colombo there? <laughs> And Columbo keeps having this problem where he needs to make a call to somebody. So he's like, oh, can I use your phone? Can I come in? And then he immediately forgets about the phone call that he did not need to make to coo over a bunch of incriminating photographs on the wall. <laughs> Isn't it just funny how different people are? <laughs> we could have watched Columbo instead of this. <laughs> Columbo, good. They track down the cordless phone. They go up to the crawl space where, like, the closet where Toshio was, where the ominous journal was, and they find the phone sitting there right where the ominous journal was sitting. And then they also find some hair, and they're like, oh, that crawl space to the attic is open. Let's go look. Let's go crawl into it. At least you're detectives, and you're also wearing gloves as part of your uniform, so, you know, you're more prepared for this. The tetanus risk is lower. It's never zero. <laughs> And they flash a flashlight around, and there they find Matthew and Jen's bodies. <laughs> also, they hear that, like, possession ringing sound in their ears, but that doesn't really do anything. 
Because then they're like, hey, whose is that? And they find just for the gore factor of the American movie, a lower jaw with teeth. Yep. Because it's got to have the gore factor. The Americans get bored. Why would that be removed? <laughs> Who knows? Don't know. Don't know. Not really following the M.O. of anything else. Nobody else gets dismembered. It's probably fine. It's fine. Let's go see Sarah Michelle Gellar. So we flashed back to uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar as she wakes up in the hospital. Doug is there to smooch her and stroke her face in a very soulful way. <laughs> I like that he also immediately jumps straight into telling her that she's remembering things wrong because she's like, I don't know what happened in that house. And he's like, an old lady died and that's everything. <laughs> Completely natural causes. You're being ridiculous. Because, you know, this is an American horror movie. You gotta have a bit where a boyfriend gaslights his significant other. Gaslighter! It's important that nobody believes the worried white lady so she can do research later. Yeah, don't worry about it. Then the detective shows up to talk to Mayor Sarah Michelle Karen about- <laughs> I love that. Sarah Michelle Karen. Sarah Michelle Karen. <laughs> about the Sayaki murders, barely. Oh no, here's the best part. Those are two separate, very tiny scenes. And in the middle of it, we do the whole Susan sequence. Because now we have to jump to Susan, an office lady, in a big Japanese office, who can only speak English. Susan can only speak English? How does she do her job? Good question. <laughs> Excellent question. How does she do it? We don't know. She's in her office in Japan. As she's leaving, she gets a call from her brother. And he's doing the death gurgle through the phone, but it's not... The normal death gurgle, it's like undulating. Yeah. And her reaction is like, oh, stop being such a dick, which implies that Madden <laughs> does this stuff on the reg. <laughs> this is a slightly more faithful version of like what happened to Hitomi, except for some differences. Notably, Susan does not try to duck into the bathroom to avoid anything. She just yeah. tries to go into the stairwell and then the lights above Susan start going out one by one. And below her, we actually see Kayako like crawling up the stairs a little because, you know, we got to up the spook factor. Throw on a bunch of jump scares. That makes it more sophisticated. Yeah, throw on a bunch of jump scares. It's fine. And she also still loses a cell phone charm, but I think it's like a lucky rabbit's foot. Maybe. Yeah, it's like it's like a rabbit's foot. It's not a little teddy bear. So it really, it's just like a weird little bit of fluff or something. But she loses that in the stairwell before running to the security station. And she's like, in Japanese, she manages to stammer out like, 10th floor, something. And then just switches back to English like, you have to help me. Oh, Jesus. In yep. her best, like, her name isn't Karen, but boy, is she Karen. <laughs> just her best affronted white lady is in danger voice when speaking to someone who is not also white and the security guard is just like all right gaijin just just sit down <laughs> just go reassure the white lady by going up to the 10th floor where nothing is i wouldn't believe her <laughs> So we do the same thing when, like, she watches him on the monitors. This time we see the lights flickering because we need more spookers. <laughs> she watches, like, the shadows start coming out. She books it as well, but she also then has trouble, like, leaving the building and then gets a cab. She sees this shadow emerge right behind the poor security guy, and her immediate reaction is, Well, I'd better leave. F*** that guy. <laughs> yeah, bye. <laughs> He's on his own, I guess. 
Don't worry about it. It's fine. And we also have this weird bit where I guess that was too scary. So we need to cool down. So we just like actually follow her taking a cab home. Yeah. We even like have the cab shown outside her apartment building for shot continuity. So it's like, so I guess we just really needed to watch her take a cab. I don't think there's even anything creepy that happens. No. She just uses public transportation. Well, she's an American. That's exotic. (laughs) That's exotic. She could have just gotten on the train. She gets to her apartment building and rides up the elevator and they do that same shot that was really good in Juon, but now they try to make it spookier, which has the opposite effect. Yeah, like not only does the elevator thing go by really fast, but also when Toshio appears, he's on the other side of that visible space for like two floors and then he's right next to it. So they try to do a jump scare. Doesn't work. Doesn't work at all. It doesn't work. It's really unsettling that Toshio is just quietly staring as like the elevator goes up slowly. And in this one, they try to do it like way too like, now it's scary. She goes to her apartment Then she gets a phone call again from her brother. We do the same thing where, like, he's at the door rudely fast. He's not in the peephole. The phone makes the creepy rattle noise. And then she just straight goes up to bed and finds the phone charm. Like, no TV sequence here, unfortunately. Nope. And then she climbs in the bed again and is sucked into the bed. Yeah. Also, this apartment seems suspiciously large for a Tokyo apartment. Yeah. Oh, it's enormous. It's well (laughs) furnished. She's got like a beautiful high rise apartment that's clearly expensive. There's art in the decor. How is she affording this on an office lady salary? Unknown. (laughs) What does she do for a living? Now we get a flash to Alex, aka Random White Boss. We cut back to Karen. She does the interview with Nakagawa. She brings up the mysterious notebook, IDs Toshio. She gets the whole spiel about Takeo and Kayako. Apparently in this one, Takeo and Kayako were also both found in the attic, I think, or something. Anyway, then we cut back to Karen leaves the hospital and then she goes to find her boyfriend who is working at Fungo Dining. I have so many questions about Fungo Dining. (laughs) It looks like it's just like a cafe or something, but Doug clearly does not speak that much English. He is here and he's like, Sumi Masen, can I take the day off? (laughs) Jesus Christ. No effort. No effort made whatsoever. (laughs) He can't even do the full sentence in Japanese while speaking to his manager. And his manager is just like, yeah, just go. (laughs) You can't communicate with any of our customers. You're really more of a hindrance than a help at this point. You are an exotic white boy. And you're bringing in customers because they want to look at the exotic tall white boy. You're the diversity hire. (laughs) Karen and Doug take a bus back to their apartment. And Karen's like, I just saw something in that room and it was weird. And then she sees like a gigantic Kayako face in the window of the bus for a second. She's like, it's like the size of a beach ball. Oh, God. It's such a blatant, dumb jump scare. (laughs) Yeah. We, like, go back to the apartment. We do the thing where Karen takes a shower and she feels a hand on the back of her head. And then we cut back to Alex. Who is leaving when he notices a stumbling Yoko whose outfit is ripped up to show off more of her body. And she's dripping blood and she's just kind of stumbling past him. And he's like, Yoko? Yoko, is that you? And then he almost slips on some blood, so he's confused, and he focuses over on Yoko. 
And she slowly turns around and he starts screaming when he sees her face. And then we cut back to her face and she's missing her lower jaw and her tongue's lolling down. So I guess that was Yoko's jaw in the attic. Why did Yoko get dismembered? Nobody else got had like... No one else does. Why? Yeah. Why did Yoko get dismembered and then zombied? (laughs) Like, what did... (laughs) We can have like ghosts and stuff. Sure. But like... Why did Yoko get this? Like, nobody else in the Grudge or Juon got, like, pulled apart. It feels so tawdry. It feels so cheap. It does. Yeah. Gotta keep the Americans interested, guys. She could have just been a creepy ghost. This feels like something Sam Raimi came up with in a boardroom and they felt like they had to keep it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, honestly, that does seem kind of like Sam Raimi, like, genre schlock. He loves genre schlock. And it works in a Sam Raimi movie, but in this movie it does not. Yeah, it's the one bit of like genre schlock where everything else is, you know, there's jump scares and stuff. But like Juon is not really built for that. But you know what this movie is built for? Worried white lady research scene. Oh, God. She gets on Yahoo.com. Ah, she yahoos it. Audience who may be younger, we need you to understand the extent to which this scene is in every horror movie from like 2002 (laughs) to 2012. It defined the decade. (laughs) You always got to have a white lady who is worried and not believed by other people doing research about a ghost. Sometimes the formula mixes it up and it's a worried guy doing research uh, about a ghost, usually about his house. And like, that's how you get things like Bagool. I'm just... (laughs) I'm just picturing, like, the modern-day, like, equivalent of this, where she types in, like, house ghost address, gets a bunch of garbage results, house ghost address Reddit, and then gets some good results. <laughs> oh, man, you know, you know, honestly, I would say this scene was done most recently in Ready or Not, where you have that one guy who married into the family just Googling in the bathroom, curses real or bullshit. deals with the devil real or bullshit (laughs) did not get good results no god what a fun movie ready or not as good people you should watch it oh ready or not is so fucking fun (sighs) just pop they just pop anyway Karen does worried white lady research, does Yahoo, and she eventually comes up with articles from, like, the Japan newspaper, where it's just, conveniently, there is an article about Takeo killing Kayako and Toshio, lists them by their first and last names, even the child, which I don't, like, I know that there are a lot of privacy laws about minors being reported in a lot of Japanese publications. I don't know how far that extends to, like, murder victims. Also, this publication is conveniently entirely in English. Conveniently. Yeah. Yeah, Don't worry about it. And just below, directly below the article about the Saike murders is an article about Bill Pullman throwing himself over a balcony. Yep. (laughs) Immediately below it. You have to imagine that the journalists who posted that were like, huh, it's interesting that these two happen on the same day in the same (laughs) locale. It's, you know, I don't think it's related. Well, they're both going above the fold. (laughs) Yeah. Put it there and uh, let's go get some drinks. (laughs) Good day, everybody. Just the person doing layout for the front page that day being like, well, it's a slow news day. (laughs) (laughs) 
I better put I better put the American professor suicide and the, and the domestic violence murder both on the front page. Yep. Yeah. And you know what? They're probably not related. Don't worry about it. And then I'll pull something off the wire for the rest of it. <laughs> we cut back to Detective Nakagawa, who, by the way, the detective who was going to burn the house up, he's kind of the same guy here. We don't worry about like Izumi or anything. So Nakagawa is just alone watching the security tapes with nobody else in the entire precinct. And he does the same thing where Kayako stumbles towards the camera and then appears over it and stares. And he even looks around like, nah, I probably shouldn't be alone while I'm doing this. <laughs> and then he just keeps watching it alone anyway. Yeah. So Karen decides that now that she has done enough white lady research, she's got to hit the streets. She's got to go talk to other white people. <laughs> she's got to go harass a widow. Oh my god, like, she goes to Bill Pullman's old apartment. His wife is still here. I would have moved, personally. <laughs> I would have moved. <laughs> so weird memories. I would have gone somewhere else. And also, like, Maria, the wife, is still here, and she's in her morning red cocktail dress and perm. Yeah, yeah like, what is up with this fucking outfit? Is the implication that she's going out tonight, or what? <laughs> Because she like she doesn't even say anything like that. She's just kind of in the house. This is what she wears when she is mourning her husband who died three months ago or something and is also just hanging around. Yeah, don't worry about it. Like it's a one-shouldered red cocktail dress. And so she's like, all right, here's all my husband's old shit. And Karen starts looking through all of these photographs and finds in all of these pictures of Maria and Bill Pullman she notices that Kayako is in the same, Everyone. it's in the background. Every single one. Every single one. Every single one. Wearing complete white, by the way. Oh my god. Because ghost colors. And she's always like glowering at the camera. So like she has this very like sinister look. They make sure that like her makeup and everything makes her look like her face is very narrow and drawn and evil because holy shit. Yeah. Japanese lady scary. She's so scary. She's in every single photo. Oh my god. It, like, it, it's absurd. It, like, it's almost comedic. Yeah. Because, like, literally every photo, and none of them seem to notice this. <laughs> to the point where she pulls down, like, the photo of, like, the couple that's sitting on the mantle, and Kayako's in the background of that one, too. <laughs> like, like, what? It's silly. This is a silly movie. It's silly. And then we don't have title card transitions, so you can't tell that we're going back in time. So you're just going to have to be alarmed for, like, confused for a couple of minutes until you figure it out. Because now we go back to Bill Pullman. Yep. And so he's like, it turns out he's getting letters from Kayako, too. She even, like, puts her address and full name on them because I guess she's in love with him. Yeah. And he's like, I have no idea who this is. So he decides to go and investigate. Gotta go to the house. You can't die unless you go to the house. Nope. He goes to ring and knock on the door, but no one answers. So he goes around the corner, pushes some bushes out of the way, and sees Toshio, and Toshio falls backwards. Yeah, Toshio seems to be like- After some bad Japanese, I should note, Konnichiwa! Oh, Jesus. Okasan home? <laughs> No effort whatsoever. I will say that he's at least saying grammatically correct sentences like parents are where? Like parents, wah. Which is, you know, at least at least he is saying the lines that he is supposed to say. See, he, he has been provided a script. 
He's a university professor. What language is he lecturing in? <laughs> Great question. Toshio was like, I, I believe Toshio was supposed to be like dangling out of the side of the bathroom and then he just slides back into the tub. And then Bill Pullman, like he enters the house. It's already trashed. He finds Toshio, who is in his like human guise, which is where he is like bandaged up and injured. Like this is a kid that has been through the ringer. Yeah. And he starts like he's looking around the room and he finds like a torn up picture that he starts putting together like a puzzle to find that one picture of the family where Kayako's face is missing. And he's like, huh, I hear a cat somewhere. And behind him, it's just Toshio making cat noises. <laughs> so I guess at this point, Kayako's already dead. Yeah, I guess. And then we cut back to Karen in the present day. And she's here to see Nakagawa on the roof. I feel like there's like two different movies in this movie where like Nakagawa is very clearly in like a, the kind of noir movie where you stare grittily off into the distance yeah. while you stand on top of a building and like everybody yeah. else is in a completely different movie. Yeah. So he stares off into the distance and as Sarah Michelle Geller walks up to him, he goes, it is sad in Japan <laughs> when a person dies, death becomes part of the place that they died, killing everything it touches. Yeah, they say that everywhere. <laughs> they say that everywhere, Nakagawa. Once you have become a part of it, it will never let you go. He then bows and leaves. <laughs> oh my god, he's even like, it's the fact that he starts this out with, it is said in Japan. <laughs> you mean here? You mean here in this place where you live? <laughs> you mean here? <laughs> you know, hey, we have a saying or something would be slightly better than it is said in Japan and make it sound like a far off country and not like literally where you are right now. You are a native of this country. <laughs> also, why does this movie try to position that ghosts are like some exotic foreign concept? <laughs> like, do we really? Are we really going to assume that an American audience is going to have a hard time with the concept of a vengeful ghost? Really? Like, he's not even saying, like, Onryo or anything that is a specific type of, like, vengeful ghost. He's just saying the most generic shit. This is a silly movie. What he's really saying is, like, hey, the vibes are bad here. <laughs> this place has failed the vibe check. <laughs> the vibes are completely rancid in this house. <laughs> oh, God, there is a modern grudge remake. Don't speak that into existence. <laughs> There is. One came out in 2020. Oh, God. Except it came out in 2020, so nobody knew it existed. We were all busy at the time. We were all a bit distracted for some reason. <laughs> for some reason, we weren't going to movies in 2020. And so, like, Nakagawa just bows and leaves. And then he's like, because he mentions that, like, three of his friends investigated the Psyche murders three years ago. Two of them died. One of them disappeared. <gasps> And like, okay, yeah, it's been three years. Why is Bill Pullman's wife still here? Why is she still in the same apartment? Why is she still in the same apartment? I would move. I would yeah, move I'd, so I'd fast. It's <laughs> like, sure, maybe I wouldn't go back to like my country of origin where my family is, but I would probably at least move to a different apartment. Yeah, the, like the rent on that place must be insane. <laughs> like, I just, I wouldn't want to wake up every morning with my bed that faces the balcony. We see him go into the house with petrol because he's taking Toyama's place here. He starts to splash around when he hears some splashing in the distance rather than teen girls. And like a kid's crying and screaming. Yeah. And he goes to open the door 
And he finds Toshio just sitting with his face in the tub drowning. And then like Takeo's ghost comes up behind him and drowns Nakagawa, apparently. But, you know, that doesn't really matter because he's not white. Yeah, he's so- not white. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> this movie just kind of forgets he ever existed past this point. <laughs> yeah. he's He was here to make sure that the petrol was in the house for reasons later. That's his only contribution to this movie at this point. Yeah, he had to make sure the petrol was there and he had to explain to Karen that ghosts. So like Karen comes home and a bunch of her like research papers that she printed out from the internet are there, uh, scattered on the desk. Because that's a thing you did back then. <laughs> you printed out things from the internet. Yeah, that's, that's all you had to do. And it turns out her boyfriend, another thing that you used to do, has left her a <laughs> voicemail on their answering machine. <laughs> and he tells her like, hey, so I found your investigation papers. Where the hell are you? <laughs> By the way, Alex and Yoko are both dead now. <laughs> Just beach dubs. Did you go to this house? Did you go to the house? I'm going to go to the house. This is probably fine. It's dark and I'm going to go to the house alone because maybe you're there. (laughs) Bye, babe. Doug is not a great boyfriend. Or particularly intelligent. No. And so, like, this is the thing, like, instead of Rika going to try and, like, save her friend who is, you know, been tricked into going into the house, now... Karen is just there to try and rescue her stupid boyfriend, Doug. (laughs) Karen, honey, cut your losses. (laughs) And like, you would think that maybe we were setting up something where like, now Doug is going to be possessed by Takeo and like reenact the murders with Karen taking Kayako's place. And it's going to be like cyclical and sad. And no, no, this movie has forgotten that that's a concept. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They kind of played with it a bit and then forgot. Yeah. And so, like, Doug arrives at the house and he just kind of wanders around in the dark. And then Karen arrives looking for Doug and she hears somebody talking upstairs. So she goes upstairs and it turns out it is a vision of Bill Pullman on the phone. (laughs) He's, like, hanging out with Toshio, who's doing some drawing on the floor because he's got to be a creepy kid that draws. And they look at each other. Like, Toshio does this neat thing where he just, like, starts drawing and then looks up and stares directly at Karen. Because, you know, if there's one thing Toshio's good at doing, it's ominously staring at things. (laughs) That's what he's for. It's what he's for. And Bill Pullman is, like, trying to follow Toshio's gaze and wanders out into the hallway. It's like, what the hell is he looking at? And he can't see Karen, which is, like... yeah. It's fun. That part's fun. That part's fun. Karen can see him. He can't see Karen. But then he gets distracted because we get a little bit of that, like, possession ringing sound that is not really a possession ringing sound in this movie. It's just kind of there to say, like, hey, spooky things. And also it blends in with that omnipresent Kazarin. (laughs) (laughs) That wind chime will not go away. (laughs) Will not shut up. And he wanders back into another room in the house. Where someone has been busy with arts and crafts. I have genuinely no idea who was supposed to have done this. Yeah. Was it Kayako? Was it her husband? Unclear. There's a ton of photos of Kayako where her face has been torn out and pinned to the wall. And there's bloodstains and stuff. But what he finds first is the journal. Like the ominous journal. And it's Kayako's journal. And it's a stalker journal. It's her stalker journal. We get a little voiceover and everything. Because Japanese lady scary. (laughs) 
Because this whole movie is just Japanese lady scary. Japanese lady God. scary. Because she's like, oh, there's a man I'm in love with, but he doesn't know I exist. Oh, his name's Peter. Peter, 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 Peter. I want to hold his hand and I want to get married to him. And also I stole some of his hair. And also I know where he lives. And I'm going to go be in every single photo that he's in. Peter, 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 Peter. Yeah, there's a, like a page where she's like gotten some of his fingernail clippings and taped them onto like an outline of a hand. Yeah, it's like, I'm going to draw his hand and I'm going to draw little stick figure drawings of us holding hands. And I'm going to keep drawing a whole bunch of eyes because it's the, you know, we're just not beating around the bush here, folks. <laughs> Peter, Peter, Peter. Peter. To be fair, I, I would be hard pressed to find a single student's notebook that didn't have a bunch of eyes in it. Yeah, I mean, that's what you draw. That's what you draw in the margins. Yeah. Have you, haven't you ever doodled the eye? <laughs> because they're beautiful windows to the soul. <laughs> They're beautiful windows to the soul. And also, it's just an easy thing to draw when you're not really paying attention. And also, if you were a teen during the manga boom. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. There are so many different kinds of eyes to draw. And then he, like, he reaches for something on the floor at the same time that, like, Karen does. And, like, they both reach for the gun. Yeah. But then she gets, like, kind of a chill. Like, they almost intersect, and, like, they both seem to feel, like, a weird chill, which is, again, it's a neat idea. Yeah, just completely goes away past this point, because it is, like, ten minutes from the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this movie's not long. No. No, it is a lean 90 minutes, thank goodness. He finds the sliding door full of all the pictures of Kayako pinned there. Behind him, the wind blows the journal open to a place where a page is torn open so you can see an eye below that page. Like a drawing of an eye. Cool image. Not sure what it's contributing to anything. Nope. Not at all. He notices there's flies on the door. He opens it. The crawl space is open. And Kaiko's body just falls out and stares at him. Like, <laughs> not even the ghost, just the body. It's like the can of peanuts with the snake in it, really. <laughs> it's silly. It is, though. You open the door and then, ta-da, it's Kaiko. There's so many things in this movie that are not supposed to be funny, but they are funny. <laughs> They're incredibly funny. And then he stumbles out. He looks into the room where Toshio was, sees something awful that we don't know yet, and then he leaves the house, presumably to go get in bed with his wife and then throw himself over railing in the next yeah. day. Don't worry, we're not going to wonder what's happening for very long <laughs> because the movie's almost over. Because Karen is back in sort of the present day, the vision is over, and there's a thumping in that room where Toshio was, and it's Takeo swinging from the ceiling because he has hanged himself. Toshio is thumping him against the wall. I think. I think. He's he's swinging really loud. We talk really cavalierly about suicide in this movie. That's because the movie itself is really cavalier about yeah. suicide. Does not take yeah. it seriously at all. Yeah. Just of note that while we're talking very cavalierly about it, it's because that's how the movie is. Yeah, the movie does not really add any, like, depth or emotional integrity to the act of suicide to the point where Bill Pullman, like, they almost try to go for, like, a scare factor where they show a body after he has gone off the railing at the beginning. But it also just has the exact same comedic depth of, like, whoop. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's almost like a cartoon slide whistle sound effect with that yeah, guy. It's like what a Clockwork Orange was doing on purpose, but by accident. Yeah. So, you know, he's just sort of thumping against the wall really loud. We see this grainy vision of Takeo discovering the journal and then like drowning Toshio and also his cat. 
And it's it's sort of like yeah. the the opening flashes that you have at the beginning of Ju-on where you see the crime occurring in the first place. Except in this one, there's a journal, so Takio is correct. And Karen is like, oh my god, oh no, she stumbles down the stairs. We have this grainy vision of, like, Takeo discovering the journal and drowning Toshio and the cat. So it's kind of like the opening of Juon, except this time, like, oh, you see, it's not just that he was abusive and paranoid and decided that he would just snap and kill his wife. He had a reason to. He had motive. She was scary and a stalker. <laughs> Which is just look, fuck you, man. Yeah. <laughs> fuck this movie. Fuck this version. It's about domestic abuse. Yeah. Saying that Kayako was scary the whole time really completely removes her as a tragic victim who is now inflicting that cycle of trauma onto other people. Which, again, Takeo is still very much a part of. Yep. If this was a video game, Takeo would be the final boss. If this were a JRPG where you kill God. (laughs) (laughs) But instead... Kayako's always been evil, I guess. Yep, don't worry about it. Heavy sigh. (sighs) So, Karen does the thing where she goes down the stairs and sees Kayako's face in the mirror. And then Doug is here? Hey guys, remember Doug? Doug is, yeah. Remember Doug? Doug is randomly here. Are we still motivated by Doug? I guess we're still motivated by Doug. Okay. I guess she hasn't really been looking for Doug since she got here. She kind of got distracted by Bill Pullman. Yeah. Yeah. Who, as we know, is the sexiest white man in Japan. (laughs) Like, damn, girl, get better taste. (laughs) So Doug grabs her foot and she's like, oh, my God, Doug, we have to get out of here because she's down in, you know, the sort of lower part where you're usually taking your shoes off and changing out for like house slippers. She's right at the door there. She's right on the threshold. And Doug's also there. Did not take her shoes off. Did not take her shoes off for this part, no. Honestly, she deserves to get murdered by a ghost. (laughs) And then, like, we hear Kayako doing the death rattle, and she starts coming down the stairs. And honestly, for this part, I feel like this part in particular did Kayako's movements and makeup. Like, I feel like the budget was used effectively in this instance right here. She looks extra creepy. So I think it was used effectively here because she was extra creepy, but I feel like the rest of the movie where they did all the jump scares did her a disservice. I agree. Kind of negating that extra creepiness. You know, that is fair. That's a fair point because at this point we've seen so much of Kayako and we've seen so much of like hair demon that her coming down the stairs here does kind of lose an effect. And that plus them wanting to lean into the gore of Takeo murdering her and Toshio and Mar the cat just kind of made me go, but why? Yeah. Because what was left unseen and Juon made it so much better. It's true. Like, again, horror movies often do really well as indie movies where you have to do more with atmosphere and staging than with a scary ghost. Not to say that Juon was necessarily an indie movie, but it was clearly made with less of a budget than The Grudge. Yeah. So Kayako is like rattling down the stairs. She's like climbing down. She's in that bag that she was wrapped up in. And then instead of going straight for Karen, she climbs up on Doug and, like, devours him or something? 
Doug just sort of stops being in the movie here. Yeah. Doug stops being an entity here. Yeah. Yeah. We also see like Toshio is doing that thing where he's crouched at the railing at the top of the stairs, just looking down. And then now Kayako is coming for Karen. Karen even manages to get the door in and Kaya goes on the other side of the door, which frankly I have a problem with because that means that like there should be at least some kind of feeling of the threshold of getting out of the house being different, even if it follows you home. Yeah. She shouldn't be on the other side of the door, but like she is and Karen closes the door and like Kayako's still kind of crawling towards her and now the doors and the windows of the house are rattling too because it's haunted. <sighs> and then she finds Doug's lighter. Do we remember Doug having a lighter before? No. I don't remember Doug having a lighter. I think he smokes in like the fucking like graveyard scene. Oh yeah! I, I think vaguely you're right. remember that. I didn't take note of the lighter. I just took note of the fact that he was fucking smoking at this fucking cemetery. Yeah. Yeah, no, I compl- you're right. I completely forgot about that part because I was so mad about just, you know, these white people ogling some like old people paying their respects to a loved one, you know, like 20 feet away. I also got to say, this backpedaling a little bit, the scene where Karen is running away from Kayako, opens the front door, sees Kayako on the other side and slams it immediately. Scooby-Doo ass shit. <laughs> That's some Scooby-Doo ass shit. Oh my God, it is though. <laughs> Ugh, just don't do that. Don't do that. So like she finds Doug's lighter and the petrol cans are there. She kicks over a petrol can and then lights the house, which immediately starts like... The whole place starts lighting up. <laughs> Just like, sure. And Kayako crawls on top of her. And instead of feeling like, oh, my God, this is a cyclical thing played over and over again with no end in sight. It's a metaphor for domestic abuse and, and carried trauma. No, Kayako just crawls up on her and like we fade to white. Yeah. Spooky. And then we cut to Detective Igarashi looking at a body under a sheet. And for some reason, they tried to delay it for a couple of seconds to tell us whether or not it's Doug. <laughs> it's Doug, though. It's Doug, though. It is Doug, though. They actually expect you to think for a second that they killed, killed Sarah Michelle Geller in a fire. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nope, it's a Caucasian male. Bill Pullman's already dead. So it must be Doug. It must be Doug. <laughs> and we don't care about Alex anymore. Nope. Who's Alex? You know. Joxer. <laughs> They're like, oh, and so the girl survived too. How did she survive? I don't know. But we were able to save the house. Oh, good. <laughs> Thank goodness. It's not as though the Japanese housing market is such that houses are usually bulldozed entirely with new ones built on top of them rather than like having the same house over and over again. We save the house though. So Karen is brought in. She's in a robe. Her robe is tied right over left, which I don't think that's on purpose to make her look like a ghost. I think she just tied it that way. Because <laughs> <laughs> left over right versus right over left is a thing. Anyway. I think it's safe to assume that not a lot of what this movie does is on purpose. <laughs> nope. So, like, they brought her down to, I guess, ID Doug, but they don't need anybody in there to, like, have her confirm the death, too. So maybe she's just here to say goodbye to Doug? Listen, they just needed her alone in the morgue room so that the creepy thing can happen. That's yeah. really the, yeah. the That's most they, they thought this through. Ugh. Yeah, so like she has this quick jump scare where she sees hair coming out from below the thing 
below the sheet and like the arm that falls out from under there looks like it might be Kayako's, but it's not. It's Doug. It's Doug. She pulls open the sheet and she's like, oh, there's Doug. It's definitely Doug. But then she hears a croaking sound of the death rattle and Kayako's just right behind her. (laughs) And then that's the end of the movie. Yay. Would you believe she comes back for the sequel? Oh, for God's sake. (laughs) Apparently she comes back for the grudge too. Oh, great. I only discovered, so there's the grudge, there's the grudge too, that like, I think is made up of like, sequences like the Izumi stuff that they cut out from this as well as some other stuff but like it went in sort of a it was less of a remake and more of just a different direction then the grudge three the grudge comes to america (laughs) where the grudge haunts a whole apartment building and then i guess there's a 2020 grudge that nobody saw for some reason for some strange reason (laughs) it's not a good movie folks no it's weird because it follows so many of the beats of Juon that you would think it would be fine. But instead of transplanting the whole story and just making it like a haunted house movie that is just in America, keeping it in Japan, but putting a whole bunch of white people at the center just stretches the limits of believability somehow. Yeah. That also changes the meaning of the movie because it in, in this movie now, most of the victims are white Americans mm-hmm. and all of the monsters and the scary people are Japanese. And instead of this movie being about, you know, the oppressive atmosphere created by misogynistic violence, it's instead a movie about how if you go to a different country, you will be stalked and killed. Yep. What this movie finds scary is like the exact same thing that I got from other people when I told them that I was moving to another country. It's like, oh, you're going to get trafficked. You're going to get stalked. You're going to get killed. You're going to get kidnapped. Something's going to happen to you. And I was moving to f***ing England. You weren't even (laughs) moving to a place with a different language. Yeah, it's still full of white people. It's still full of white people who speak English. Imagine if I'd said I was moving to Japan. Oh my god. Hopefully we've proven that sometimes your setting could make or break your story. Because if your setting is Japan, maybe focus it on Japan. Yeah, you know, Japanese characters. The ring works. The ring works really well. It is. It does a good job. Because they didn't try to set it in Japan about a bunch of white people in Japan. They set it in America and adjusted it to fit the expectations of Americans. Yeah, it had different trapping. They changed details about the setting that were inextricably Japanese to bring like, it was essentially, it was a localization. Like, yeah. It was a very good adaptation, and, like, just because The Ring did it well doesn't mean that you should do The Grudge in the same way. I mean, goodness sake. Setting it in Japan, but still adding in a bunch of white people, it it, it just, it doesn't work. Your setting is muddled, your characters are muddled. It is very difficult to buy into the movie in the first place, much less, like, believe any of the actual setting-specific themes and ideas that Juon is attempting to communicate. And instead it creates a theme that is deeply xenophobic. Like, holy shit. Like, ugh. Like, the thing that bugs me the most is making Kayako, like, a villain in life. Yeah. And it's so disgusting and disturbing that they decided to make her a villain rather than lean into Takeo's jealousy and controllingness was terrible. Like, Takio's not in much of Ju-On, but he has a presence felt throughout it. Takio's barely in the grudge. Ugh, okay, 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 okay. Movie bad. (laughs) Movie bad. (laughs) Movie bad. (sighs) 
All right. I think it's time for our final facts at this point. I think so. Kit, what's your final fact? My final fact is if you don't figure out what your movie is saying, your movie will start saying things without your permission. And those things are usually bad. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Annie, what's your final fact? When in doubt, just start drawing eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Just start drawing eyes. It'll either really entertain you or it'll be great for someone to ominously find later. (laughs) Mac, what's your final fact? Both, if you're going to make a movie that's a remake of a movie from another culture, do the work localizing it so it, like, suits the area you're putting in. Don't try to just ham fist shove your culture into the other culture. And two, if you have a grudge, let it go. (laughs) (laughs) We're letting go of this movie. I speak as someone who has what is jokingly called a book of grudges. (laughs) Where I write down every grudge I have against and remember it forever. (laughs) Just let it go. Did you get that notebook that says ledger of perceived slights on it? (laughs) Because I have that one. It's it's very good. I should. I should write it all down. But while the joke is that I do that, I'll have this book of grudges. I will not like fixate on it. (laughs) And I think more people should do that. This movie reminds me the most about how when they took Godzilla 54 and they distributed it in the United States, they just spliced in a whole ass white guy who doesn't really affect the plot at all. (laughs) Yeah, no, they added a white guy so he could be your focal point character. It's the same movie. There's just a bunch of scenes with a white guy. Just kind of observing things and pretending to talk to people. A prehistoric monster the Japanese call Godzilla has just walked out of Tokyo Bay. He's as tall as a 30-story building. It's less of a good adaptation than Power Rangers. (laughs) That is going to wrap it up for us, as we've proven the fact that changing your setting can make or break the story when it comes to adaptations. Join us next time. It's my pick again, so I'm going with something that I've had on the list for a while. (laughs) Haunting us. My fact is going to be the Avatar fandom got weird there. (laughs) (laughs) and i'm gonna prove it by talking about my favorite avatar fan comic and yours how i became yours (laughs) the zutara fic by jackie diaz i think about this so often and now we're all gonna think about it together yeah annie thinks about this once a week (laughs) at least once a week Okay, okay. Yeah, no. I'm I'm sorry. I just I, I went to my how it became yours place for a second there. <laughs> it's fine. <sighs> I will fight you comes out every five weeks. You can find us wherever you download podcasts. If you would like to find us on social media, we are still at Twitter at the moment. CRC Podcasts. Man, the, the social media part just gets weirder every single time. <laughs> Have you set up a newsletter yet? You know what? I don't have the f***ing time. (laughs) You can just Google Crooked Russian Cam. You'll probably find our We have a website. We have a website. That's got links and stuff on it, right? That's got links and stuff on it. I'm pretty sure it's up to date, but it is at crookedrussiancam.horse or crookedrussiancam.gay. You can find out where we are currently located in terms of social media. But like, you know, if you feel like braving the uh, wilds of Twitter to (laughs) talk about this episode, you can find me there. Uh, We also have a Discord that has like some cool people on it. You know, you can talk about the show there as well. If you would like to support us, like, 
you know the spiel, like, rating, review, comments, what have you. That's always nice. If you want to support us with dollars, that's extra nice. And you can do that at patreon.com slash the gem jam, where for even just like a dollar a month, you get early episodes of I Will Fight You at our $5 tier that's behind the scenes. You get show notes for all of our episodes. And along the way, you can also find rewards for our other shows, Date Me Damn It and Gem Jammer as well, usually early episodes or other show notes or things like that. We also send you shitty index cards sometimes you need to give us <laughs> enough money. <laughs> or Mac will sing songs for you, but not good. They're not good. <laughs> Sometimes good. You have to pay extra for the good song. Yeah, she'll put effort in if you pay for it. And even then, I'll just give it extra effort. I can't promise it's going to turn out. That's yeah. true. That's Effort does not guarantee quality. We do very carefully say effort. You're right. Not necessarily good, <laughs> but whether or not there is effort involved. <laughs> we have a post Patreon, folks. <laughs> it's one big post. There's a $69 tier. Yeah. <laughs> We didn't add a 420 tier that we thought about it. Or did no, we, we did. did. No, we did. Tier and then somebody actually bought it. We didn't add the $666 tier, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then we decided, no, no, no. We have to stop there. Yeah, this game of brinksmanship has to end. <laughs> <laughs> I've also got a new novelette out. For those wondering, a novelette is a slightly longer than a short story, but shorter than a novella. The range is usually around 8,000 to 12,000 words. This one's 10,000. It's called Possession. You can get it pretty much anywhere you buy ebooks. So just search Possession by Kit Walker, or you can find links on my website, inferiorwit.com, which is also a shit post. I'm also serializing Possession over on my coffee, which is coffee.com slash Kit Walker, if you want to check it out there instead. Wow, I have only ever heard people say Kofi. It's spelled like Kofi Annan. It looks like it should be pronounced Kofi. Yeah, but it's always like, buy someone a coffee and it's a little coffee cup. Yeah, but it's like, okay, so they're clearly invoking the word coffee and spelling it funny, but it's spelled like Kofi Annan, so people will pronounce it Kofi. And near as I can tell on the page, like on the website, there is no branding guide to tell you how the damn thing <laughs> is pronounced. There you go. Join us next time when we talk about how I became yours. <laughs> And I will be expecting everyone here at this table right now to read it with me together. Oh, God. Oh, yes. God. Don't worry. I've, I've already started. Annie, I don't think I have this in me. <laughs> I don't think I'm strong enough. You don't have to read all of it, but man, I need you to read at least the first two chapters. Okay. You need to see these visuals. They're very important. <laughs> okay. You gotta see Aang's 10-year-old head on an adult man body. That part's oh important God. to me. <laughs> oh, God. Join us for that next time. Until then, I'm Annie. I'm Kit. <laughs> and I'm Mac. And we have fought you. Anyway, where were we? <laughs> uh, uh, white people. White, white people. people. Lucas, if you could cut the part where it's very obvious that I stumble over Japanese names. <laughs> if you've learned nothing from this movie kit, you just need to say it as white as possible. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah that's right. It's a bit. It's a bit because this movie doesn't know how to pronounce Japanese names either. Don't worry about it. <laughs>